Hi, this is Jim Labedo, and I'm president and founder of a company called Performance Group. You're listening to the podcast version of a program that originally aired on the BizTalk radio show. I started BizTalk so you'd have access to today's leading experts about growing your company and yourself. BizTalk is produced by Performance Group. At Performance Group, we work at the front end of a company's revenue stream. We find the salespeople who generate the revenue, and we provide onboarding programs that get them doing that sooner. Our passion is aligning talent with opportunity. That's why we're known as a Salesforce development company. Enjoy the program. On our program today is Tom Searcy. He is a nationally recognized author, speaker, and the foremost expert in large account sales. His methods of unlocking explosive growth were developed through years of real-world success. Searcy is the founder of Hunt Big Sales, a fast-growth consultancy and thought leadership organization. With Searcy's guidance, Hunt Big Sales clients have landed more than $5 billion in new sales with 190 of the Fortune 500 companies, including 3M, Disney, Chase Bank, International Paper, AT&T, Apple, and hundreds more. He is the author of RFP Suck, How to Master the RFP System Once and for All, and How to Win Big Business, and co-author of Whale Hunting, How to Land Big Sales and Transform Your Company. We're on the program today talking with Tom about his new book, How to Close a Deal Like Warren Buffett, Lessons from the World's Greatest Deal Maker. Tom, welcome to the program. Jim, thanks so much for the opportunity to talk to you today. Tom, it's great having you back on the program. Before we get into your new book, maybe you can tell our audience some of the things you're seeing in the marketplace that are affecting how they sell. Boy, 30 seconds will be hard. There's a lot that's changing. I'll tell you this much. Um, One of the things that we're seeing is a restlessness in buyers right now. Buyers are are looking for newer solutions. They're looking for, they've kind of, they, uh, many of the buyers that we see out there in the marketplace, those people that the salespeople are talking to right now, believe that they have squeezed almost all of the price concessions they can out of the marketplace in the last two to three years. And now they're stuck with stripped out versions of whatever products or solutions or components that they had before, and they're starting to see the weakness in some of those purchasing practices, and they're really looking for value. Value not perceived just because of a lower price, but because of greater functionality. And so uh, I'm not saying that there's a storming back of margin opportunities, but I am saying that there's a greater appreciation for things in the conversation about sales beyond price. And it's definitely a change from uh, the previous couple of years, I have to add. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, the, the only value that seemed to be for a while, you know, the, uh, yeah. I, you know and I, I probably get in trouble when I say this, but, I, you know, I, I kind of call them the goblins of procurement. Um, and, you know, these, you know, these goblins of procurement came in for about three or four years and, and really worked at just beating up vendors to get lower prices. And now what you're seeing is smarter, more sophisticated people in procurement and purchasing, Granted, you have to grade, you have to grade that on a scale um, when I say that, <laughs> but um, but you're also finding that end users are starting to be more involved in the process of purchasing, and they're really kind of pushing back on procurement and saying, no, you don't get to control the entire process. I'm going to I'm going to step in because I'm the one who has to deal with you know, all the the potential problems that come from an under under uh, featured. A solution that's brought to you because procurement found the cheapest price. But then the end customers, all the way out at the end of the supply chain part, wind up looking at the product or service they're receiving from the manufacturers or the producers or distribution companies or technology companies and saying, hey, 
the, the components aren't strong enough, the, the, the materials aren't good enough, the, the things that I'm getting, it's not forming. So, you know, what you're seeing is failures in the final product that are starting to say, wait a minute, maybe cheapest price isn't the only metric for us to look at, and maybe procurement is not all by themselves the best solution for making purchasing decisions. Well, that's good insight, Tom, and, and that's, a, I think, a welcome relief for all of our sales producers out there to hear that because that's eventually what you're trying to do is satisfy that end customer, provide them with the best solution so they can go off and produce what they need to do. I think that one of the things that people have figured out is that, yes, it's always about price. You know, people ask the question, is it, you know, is it always about price? My answer is it's always about price. It's just never only about price. And for about two or three years there, it was only about price. Now, it's always about price, but it's never only about price. It's the same thing in selling. It's always about trust and relationship. It's just never only about trust and relationship. So if you sell just on relationship and trust and just on price, you're going to lose if you don't bring additional pieces to the table. Tom, let's talk about your new work. You're the co-author of Whale Hunting, How to Land Big Deals, which is a landmark piece of work, I might add. And I'm sure that that's serving you very well. So what prompted you over the last couple years to contemplate and write your new book, How to Close a Deal Like Warren Buffett, Lessons from the World's Greatest Dealmaker? Well, you know, like like some things that happen, right, it was more accident than plan. Uh, I write a weekly blog for CBS Money Watch. I write a weekly blog for Inc. Magazine. I write a weekly blog for Forbes. So I have three regular weekly columns. And I wrote one about how to close a deal like Warren Buffett, just a, a simple piece. And the folks from McGraw-Hill contacted me and said, you know, this is a really interesting idea. Let's turn this into a book. And so we kind of came to an agreement about what that would look like and what structure. And I got a, a great research and writing partner, Henry DeVries, who's been a friend of mine for a long time. And we said, let's go do this together. Henry worked on the background research and some of the core story writing. I worked on the translation of saying, because, look, Jim, neither you nor I gets up every day with an extra, you know, $10 billion we're supposed to put to work, right? <laughs> so so yeah. it's easy to think to yourself, you got the richest guy in the world, how do you close a, a, you know, a deal like Warren Buffett? Have a huge checkbook. That's how you do it. But, you know, uh, what, what we found from our research, from uh, our own background, studying over 100 and some odd deals that he had done, talking to the... CEOs of the companies that he bought and those owners, uh, talking to shareholders and, and going through all the research and et cetera, is that, you know, Buffett is a great salesman. He's a great salesman, not a good one, a great one, because he doesn't buy on one of the things that I think that I, I shouldn't say, you know, as if it was at all, but one of the things is he doesn't buy on price. You know, most of the time, Buffett is competing in his purchases, at least the deals that we researched against people who would have paid more money. But he sold the people to, uh, that uh, he was going to acquire the companies from. He sold them, sell your company to me, and he sold on value, not on price. So he would offer anywhere between you know 10% and 35% less to an owner of a company to allow him to buy them, and they would sell to him even though they could have gotten 10 to 35% more from somebody else. Now, I'm going to tell you, Jim, that's selling. Yeah, it's interesting uh, from reading your book and other things I've read on Warren Buffett. Some deals are made on a handshake. And, right. uh, and one of the things that he wrote, you wrote about in your book that, to quote Warren Buffett, is when you commit to things, you honor those commitments, such as 
you know, deciding to keep certain people intact at that company or deciding not to move the headquarters out of a certain town, those type of things. You'd think it would be commonsensical to most people, but they forget those things when they're, quote, unquote, out there selling. You know, contracts allow us parameters for how we're going to deal with each other when we have to go to war and maybe have to sue each other. You know, uh, the best deals, a contract is not what keeps the deal together. It's the benefit for both companies and the, and the people that are involved and the trust that keeps the deal together. Contract makes certain that future generations know what the original agreement was and that they can protect each other. And that's why Buffett you know, has this great integrity. People know that if he says something's going to happen, he's lived his whole life demonstrating that that's what's going to happen. Whatever he says, that's what he means. So, Tom, as you went through the research and you assimilated this over to how it applies to sales... You mentioned that you discovered he's one of the greatest salespeople. So what makes him a great salesman? You know, I'm going to start off uh, around that question with the fact that Buffett knows what deals not to pitch. Now, uh, he uses a reference frame that I found to be really interesting. I'm not necessarily a baseball guy, but um, I know a lot of baseball people, and they talk about Ted Williams as being you know, ranked as one of the greatest hitters ever and the last professional baseball player to finish a professional season with over a 400, and Buffett talks about Ted Williams. And the reason he talks about Ted Williams is that Ted Williams made this strike zone, all right? So if you're a strike zone, uh, for Ted Williams, that's where you're going to get a strike. The ball's going to come across the plate, and if you don't hit it or swing at it, you're going to get a strike, right? Well, Williams picked out of uh, that strike zone. He said there's really 77 little slots in that strike zone, but only eight or nine of them are where my ideal opportunity is that I can hit the ball, control it, and get on base. Because as a baseball player, I'm not paid to hit the ball. I'm paid to get on base. Buffett refers to Ted Williams again and again and again. And he says, look, my job is to know where is the sweet spot for value and to not swing at everything else that's outside of it. Deals that could be good or that are at least inside of the financial model but are not great deals, he said, I spend most of my time figuring out which deals to not do, which companies to not buy, which contracts to not enter into. Rather, and then out of all of those, every once in a while, the gem that's right in my sweet spot comes, and then I know what that looks like, and that's when I pounce. So part about being a great salesman is making certain that you're not wasting your time and energy on deals that are either average or below average or terrible. And I think most salespeople, myself included over the course of my history, have gotten so excited about a deal that the big warning signs and the flashing lights that tell me this is not going to work out well or in the end I'm going to get second place or they're going to go back to their incumbent, whoever they're buying from right now, I ignored those because I was so excited to be talking to this big company, that big brand name, or that particular executive about what looked like a big deal, and I just wasted my time and energy. Buffett conserves his time and his energy. One of the things I've admired about Warren Buffett, he seems to have tremendous clarity on where he's going and what works for him. Most of us don't have that level of clarity. So in terms of deal-making or looking at deals, what's the one piece of advice you give people to stay clear on what deals are good for them? I wrote about it in the book Whale Hunting, and I and we teach it in our academy, and it's about building your clear target filter. You know, Buffett has, in every one of his annual reports, 
he writes out what we would refer to as a prospect scan or a target filter. And it's very specific to him. It says, this is the kinds of deals that I'm looking for. And he lays it out specifically. This is what I want and this is what I don't want. And so I think part of it is, is the clarity you need to establish well in advance of, um, of anything that, you know, anybody that you're talking to or any prospect. But the second piece I would say that's been really helpful for me, and, and that is, is instead of focusing on what offering I offer and what product or service or solution or, you know, methodology I provide to, to companies, and this is in all the companies I've run and in the almost 400 companies that we've coached and worked through our academy and et cetera, all those different people, we try to get companies to focus on what is the, the problem that they are uniquely built to solve. And for whom are they uniquely built to solve it? So instead of focusing on what you do, focus on what problem you solve, and then focus on which unique people out there in the marketplace have exactly, not nearly, but exactly that problem. And when you do that and you talk to those people, you're going to connect quickly. Your, your speed to close is going to be very, very short. And the issue of price is not going to be the number one driving issue because when people have big problems, they're, they're not focused on price. They're focused on other things. How quickly can I get this problem fixed? Who is best served by reading this book? You know, I would say that it is clearly oriented for people that are in the business-to-business sales world. If you're in a business-to-consumer business, this is not necessarily really aimed for you. Now, having said that, you know, Buffett owns all sorts of kinds of businesses, right? I mean, he owns utilities, and he owns railroads, and he owns, you know, Pampered Chef that throws house parties to sell you, you know, kitchen utensils, and he owns newspapers. I mean, the breadth and depth of his business, he owns jewelry stores and furniture stores. I mean, it just goes on and on. So the ideas around all those industries, we tried to assimilate and say, okay, Let's take those ideas and put it right to the day-to-day out there in the marketplace sales representative and say, look, if you're going to use this in a business-to-business relationship to try and take these great breadcrumbs of success paths that Buffett has laid out for you, what would you do? And so I think as long as you're in the business-to-business sales world, there are some key principles. And we've got 18 chapters with 18 key ideas and some of the best stories on Buffett that are out there. Um, enclosed in there to give people the idea so that if you're not a billion-dollar checkbook guy like you and I are not, or at least I'm not, Jim, maybe you are, but if, uh, you know, but you're still trying to be successful out in the marketplace, you can translate those ideas over. Because, you know, Buffett wasn't always a billionaire. He wasn't even a millionaire. He started out as an average person, but over the course of one lifetime, he amassed the greatest amount of wealth that we have on the planet for one particular person today. You mentioned that uh, Warren has clarity of the type of deals he wants, and that serves him well in putting his deals together. Was there another major characteristic he carries forward that we can learn from him? Well, I think that there's a number of them. I think one of them is that Warren has a great ability to step into the mind of the buyer, or in this case, it would be the mind of of the owner of the company to whom he's speaking. And he understands and researches them in advance and knows what their motivation is. For example, how old are they? Do they have kids in the business? Now, that, these are Warren's uh, criteria to understand. As a sales rep, we would have different criteria. 
But he's saying, you know, is this person motivated by legacy? Are they motivated by avoiding um, the tax implications of, a, of a, a contested estate? Are they trying to diversify their risk? Do they feel like they've grown the business as far as they can and they need new management and leadership in? Warren figures that out in advance, whereas venture capital and private equity people go in and they just want to crank through the numbers and figure out how much is it worth today and if it kept doing what it's doing right now, how much would it be worth tomorrow? Well, that's okay, and that'll get you to a price point, but it might not get you to a deal. Buffett focuses on the owner, or what we refer to as the buyer's table, and tries to figure out what is that person really motivated by and what are they really trying to, uh, to, to, to get done. And as salespeople, if we do that same approach, instead of talking about how great our product or service or solution is, and instead say, what is that person's real issues or, or um, uh, the, the real drivers that are making them want to make a new change or a choice in vendors or suppliers or partners, we're going to win. And that's, that's one of the things I think Buffett does very, very well. So what you're really talking about is doing your homework. And one of the things I was intrigued about reading your book is you have a section on how to prepare for unpredictable problems. And one of the things you mentioned is profile your prospects. That's probably something that a lot of salespeople don't slow down and take the time to do. So tell, tell our audience about that in terms of getting prepared for unforeseen problems. Well, you know, in, in the very, you know, Buffett is in his mid-80s right now. So there was a time 40-plus years ago where the way he would do this is he would contact friends, business associates, suppliers, and other shareholders of the companies he was looking to acquire to get to, to understand the person better. But for us in the digital age, through, you know, things like researching people on LinkedIn, public relations, uh, you know, PR notifications, press releases, uh, trade shows, um, information that's on blogs or articles or materials that you're going to find on uh, online, our ability to profile not just the person to whom we're selling, but all of the additional people at that company who may or may not be involved in the decision. I mean, one of the things that we like to say is, is that big deals, really big sales, are not sold by salespeople alone. For the most part, there's a secondary team that has to come in and check out the technology, the operations, the quality, the compliance, all of the secondary issues. And that's on both sides of the deal. Your company, the salesperson who's selling, you're going to have to check out how we're going to interface with that other company. The buying company is going to have their own team. And so when you're doing that preparation to prepare for just who you believe to be the decision maker is short-sighted. The decision maker may get very, very excited. His technology partner or peer inside that company may come back and have lots and lots of questions that will scuttle the deal. And in this case, it's best to go ahead and do that profile on the business, the business problems, the decision maker, and then all the secondary parties that you know you're going to need to interface with to get that big deal done. So, Tom, what you're talking about is really larger deals, which tend to be more complex, and these are more difficult to execute on. So from your experience, where do salespeople tend to drop the ball in these large, complex deals? There's really three places they fumble the ball. It's a really good question, Jim. I think the first place that they fumble the ball is they're talking to the wrong level of person inside of the organization. You know, Jim, in the last 10 years, something's really uh, important has happened. It's, I think it started 20 years ago, but in the last 10 years, you've really felt it. And let me, let me frame it this way. Managers had a certain level of dollar amount that they could approve. 
And directors and vice presidents had another level, uh, which was bigger than the managers, obviously. And then there was presidents and CXOs that could approve other levels of, of uh, purchases. So <clears throat> let's just say that, you know, it was 3X for the person who was at the top, at president and CXO, at the director and vice president. We had 2X. And at the bottom level, we had 1X. Well, here's what happened, Jim. The middle-level people have had all their authority stripped out from them. So frontline people can make budgetary decisions because the vendor's been selected and the price point's been set. All we're doing is making choices of volume. How many units do I need of something? So manager can make small decisions. The president or the CXO or the senior people inside the company, they can make 3X decisions. 2X decisions are almost always deferred over to procurement or purchasing. And so it's taken away from our middle-level management. So the first mistake we make is that we shoot at middle-level decision-makers to get a decision made instead of understanding that those people no longer have the authority to approve a purchase. Their boss has to make that approval. So we have to make a big enough – we have to help them to see a big enough issue, a big enough solution, a big enough problem that we can get their boss's attention. Otherwise, we're going to wind up in a price war with somebody handled by procurement, even as things are getting better in that area. So that's the the first place that people stumble. Second stumble is that they focus only on the decision maker. They don't go after the additional secondary voices that are going to be at that table when the decision gets made. They're going to find their person. They're going to say, hey, my person is a senior executive. He really likes this. He wants to make this decision. He wants to move forward. And then what they're going to find out is that along the way, the IT person says, I like the idea, but we can't for another six months because of. Or the operations person says, it's a good idea, but we can't because of. And we're going to get a big delay. And the reason is, and now, because our salesperson's just been talking to the only decision maker instead of an expanded team, the deal will get delayed, and then it will eventually get deflated or denied because other problems will come to play. So good salespeople get bigger teams to buy from them and get connected to them. And finally, they find themselves um, focusing on what they do and what are the terms and the conditions rather than on what problem they solve. So when they get to terms and conditions, they now have invited other competitors to the table because they've commoditized themselves instead of really focusing on what is the problem that needs to get solved. And, you know, it used to be the old question, Jim, was, you know, what, what's your biggest pain? What keeps you up at night? That's pretty old school. And the fact is, is most sophisticated buyers out there have heard those questions, and they, they look at those as being a move. Instead of really trying to say, okay, look, you're trying to get it to a change in your results. In whatever you're doing right now, you want your product to work better, you want to get to market faster, you need um, a reduction in overall, overall total cost of goods sold on the new things that are going out, whatever it is. Let's figure out what result you're trying to get, how fast you're trying to get, and then we can determine whether we as a company are the best solution to answer that particular problem. So I know I covered a lot of stuff, but those are the three things where I see people in the sales position getting themselves into trouble along the way on bigger deals. Listening to you, Tom, I can imagine some people in the audience going, wow, that's a lot of work. (laughs) I hear some people in the audience going, I should be doing that. Uh, So for our audience that recognizes they should be doing what you just described, what's the best way for them to get on track, to learn these skills, get focused on the methods, and start executing at the level you just described? Well, I mean, the the gratuitous answer is, is, you know, get my book or all those other kinds of things. But let me tell you where the free resources are. You know, people, you know, if, if they really want to get connected to that, if you go to my 
website at huntbigsales.com. Um, there's a, a, you know, I'm cleverly hitting it, Jim. It's up at the top in the little navigation bar. It says free stuff. And so <laughs> there's, there's, uh, there's videos and blogs and materials and all sorts of stuff and, and, uh, uh, interviews with thought leaders and all sorts of things about how to start to work on that. But, you know, and uh, I don't know if you know much about how authors, but authors don't make any money off of books. The book itself, Whale Hunting, um, is, uh, is a good book because it really is a how-to book. I wrote it as a how-to book because I want to see small and mid-sized companies out in the marketplace be, be armed and able to compete effectively against much bigger competitors. And so that's kind of my mission in life. And so, you know, people say, well, I'll just go on uh, eBay and, and, or Amazon and buy your book used. My answer is, good. Get my book for as cheap as you possibly can. I don't care. I want you to have the information so that you can start to go. Because here's the thing that's happening right now, right now Jim, and I, I'll try not to get on too big a soapbox, but I think that the marketplace is starting to favor bigger companies over smaller companies based upon taxation, regulation, and this whole issue of governance, which is causing procurement and purchasing to drive not to better answers, which RFPs and structured purchasing processes don't help companies to make better uh, decisions. They help companies to avoid bad decisions. And it's always easier, right, for a company to justify either continuing to work with their current vendor, who might be a big name, or to go with a new vendor who's got the biggest brand name in the marketplace, or to go with the cheapest price. But if we're not one of those three things and we want to compete out in the marketplace, Jim, we've got to have better tools than what we had a decade ago or five years ago to be able to win those big contracts. Because otherwise, it's very safety-oriented. When I say safety, meaning, you know, avoiding taking personal accountability, taking any big risks, and et cetera, but it's starting to dominate the thinking of management inside of big companies, it will wind up squeezing out small and mid-sized companies from the conversation. So we've got to have the tools to go win, and that's what my, that's my real hard mission out there is to see that happen. So that's why there's so much free stuff that's available on our website and so many ways to get connected to that information. We do that to try and see if we can't help small and mid-sized companies compete more effectively. Tom, was there one thing that surprised you in the research and as you put this together? You know, there was. You know, what, what surprised me was about Buffett. Buffett truly has a deep care for his managers, for the owners that he buys the companies from, for his shareholders, for the businesses themselves. What I found out was that this guy was not a private equity venture capital, completely by the numbers, totally at arm's length transaction kind of, a, you know, automaton or robot. This is a guy who loves his business, loves the business's customers, managers, employees, and et cetera. That was a surprise to me, and it gave me hope. Because uh, when, I, when I work with, you know, the, the hundreds and hundreds of small business and mid-sized business owners that are out there, that was something that I see in common between them and Buffett. There's a deep love for the business, the game, the people, all the things that are part of it. That surprised me. Is sales getting more difficult or more easier, in your opinion? Sales is transforming. You know, I think that um, there's a lot of people that are territorial sales reps. They drive around in their cars and make phone calls, and they contact with buyers at the end point, 
and their selling activities are becoming more and more just about quoting and servicing orders. Well, that's going to migrate to the Internet and continues to migrate every single day, even on technical products that are out there. For the new sales generation, the new sales generation is about teaching the, uh, the end customer things that the end customer didn't know about that end customer's own marketplace, about their own business, about their competitors, about what's going on out there, about the new technologies, new regulations, new constraints um, that are happening out there. And so to become, you're really becoming a knowledge worker, not about your product or service, but about your customer's business and business challenges. That's a huge shift that's been happening for some time now. And then the ability of a sales rep to then be very flexible and say, let me tell you, based upon what's going to happen, Mr. Customer, in your world, how you're going to need to develop a strategy to deal with it. So now the new sales representative is actually becoming a strategist, almost a consultant to his or her customer, trying to help his or her customer to deal with the changes in their own industry. And then finally, the sales representative gets to say, let's build you a solution that's going to help you avoid that particular change in the future. So we're moving from product specialist and solution specialist about what we offer to becoming um, business consultants uh, within reason to our customers about what their business challenges are going to be in their marketplaces. And that's a very – that's going to favor um, mentally flexible and uh, highly researched sales representatives over people that are doing a lot of windshield time, taking orders, and just offering up products. Those people are going to get squeezed into more transactional methods, including the Internet, for the handling of those. And these other knowledge workers are going to be elevated and paid more. Tom, you're with the executive of a company today. The one piece of advice you're giving them is what? Look at your business in three levels uh, as far as building a portfolio of what your processes look. So look at one sleeve is how do I handle my current customers and all of their orders and all of their, their, uh, their issues as efficiently as I possibly can. Then look at your strategy and your approach on how you land your average size accounts and develop that and charter your salespeople to go do that. And then look at your large accounts and establish a very different set of what is the value that we bring to the table, the language that we use around it, and what process we use to land that piece of business. It used to be that we used to apply all we used to apply one strategy, one approach, one methodology to all three of those layers. And I'm telling you, in the modern world that we're in right now, it's going to take three different approaches to land business and to serve those customers and keep those accounts in all three of those different tiers. And you need to really think about your business in those three pieces. The one thing that's getting Tom excited these days is what? What's getting me excited right now is that they're uh, out there in the marketplace. It is becoming easier to get to executives. Now, really? People say, wait a minute. Yeah, I know. No, no one believes that when I tell them. It's easier now than ever to get to executives, to senior decision makers, because if you've got, as a matter of fact, we teach a system that gets you there, and it's not hard to learn. It's a pretty baseline system. You talk to them in their language across their voicemail, and you can reach those folks because they've got big problems. And when you talk to big people about their big problems in their big problem language, those people go, oh, my gosh, this isn't a sales rep. This is somebody who's got really got something to help me with. 
And you can reach to them in their voicemail. You can go through LinkedIn. You can approach them through um, a referral source. Get to them and say, look, I want to talk. You as a company probably are suffering from one or more of these three challenges. Here's what we do. I'd like to come and talk to you about it. And I would say I'm excited because that's cutting through all this red tape. I mean, assume you're going to get the voicemail because you rarely get the secretary. Assume you're going to get to their email because you're going to rarely get them to open uh, a first-class letter anymore. Go, go through the fact that those things are going to be the filters, but bring the language up front. No one wants to hear the, the phone call and their voicemail says, Hi, my name is Tom Searcy. I'm calling from one of the foremost providers of the following services. I would like to find out from you if you might be interested in blah, blah, blah. That is a dead end, not going to work. Forget about it. But if you call me and say, look, I'm calling you because as the CXO of your company right now, I happen to know that you've got at least one or more of the following three problems, and we've built a solution for that. I'd like to come talk to you about how we might be able to help you with it. And that's going to get through. As a matter of fact, all the research and the data that we've done through the clients that we work with shows that it does. Well, I think people would be surprised to hear what you just said because we always hear the opposite. You can't get through to people today. The thing is, you can't get through to them using the same old stuff that we've been doing for 25 years, you know? That, that same cold call prospecting banter, to, you know, hi, here I am, here's what I do, here's who my company is. Nobody wants to hear that. They say, look, hi, I'm a brain surgeon. You have a tumor. Let's start to go to work on fixing that. And, oh, by the way, I'm really good at this. If, if the, that person on the other end of the line, and I know I'm using a very graphic example, but if that person on the other end of the line knows that they've got a brain tumor, they're immediately going to be interested in what you have to say. If you call up and just say, I'm a doctor, or even if I'm just a surgeon, their answer is, I get a call from a surgeon every day. Yeah. You call me up and say, your head hurts on the left-hand side, and this is what it means, and, and I know how to fix that. All of a sudden, you're going to get their attention. Just a very different way to shape that conversation than the way most people are shaping it. And people are answering those phone calls and responding because they have less staff. Here's the thing, Jim. Almost all these companies have less staff, less resources, and less time than they did 10 years ago. So when they've got big problems that are burning, they need that fire put out now. And so getting their attention, as long as you're talking to them about their fires, is so much easier. Tom, if people in the audience wanted to learn more about you and what you have to offer, where would they go? You go to huntbigsales.com. That's H-U-N-T, big, B-I-G, sales, S-A-L-E-S, dot com. And uh, just engage in all of the free materials that are there and, and uh, go with that. All of my books, of course, uh, underneath my name are available on amazon.com or barnesandnoble.com. So, Tom, is there one question today I should have asked you that I haven't? So, Jim, you're pretty good at this. I, uh, you know, you're baiting me on, a, on one piece. I would say this much uh, to, to everybody out there. Uh, you really have to, because of all the pressures that are happening in the marketplace, you either have to get great at processing thousands and thousands and thousands of little transactions, or you need to get great at handling big, big, big opportunities. Otherwise, you're going to spend all your time answering structured procurement, purchasing, and RFP requests as your way to represent your business. And that is a fast track to the bottom of the price barrel. And you want to get out of that. So either figure out how to go really small or figure out how to go really big. Because if you're in the middle, you're going to get squished just like a grape. Yeah, good insight, Tom. So our book is How to Close a Deal Like Warren Buffett, Lessons from the World's Greatest Deal Maker. Thanks for being on our program. Thanks so much, Joe. I really enjoyed it.
This or other BizTalk podcast may be downloaded by visiting our website, biztalkradioshow.com, where you can subscribe to BizTalk through iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at BizTalk1040 and like us on Facebook. If you want to learn the strategies finding and getting performance out of A-player salespeople, contact Performance Group by calling 800-950-9509 or visit us on the web at pmgllc.net. This has been your host, Jim Lovato.